It's one through eight. I'm going to be reading in Uzbek first and then in English. Isa qayiqqa tushib, qo'lning narigi tomonidagi Kafarnaxum shahriga suzib bordi. U o'sha paytda Kafarnaxumda yashardi. Isa shaharga kirishi bilanoq bir necha kishi uning oldiga to'shaklayotgan bir shol odamni ko'tarib keldilar. Isa ularning ishonchini ko'rib, sholga Dadil bo'l, o'g'lim. Gunohlaring kechirildi, dedi. Shunda Tavrot tafshirchilaridan ba'zilari o'zlarining bu odam kufrlik qilyapti-ku deyishdi. Ularning bu o'y fikrlarini bilgan Isa dedi. Nega sizlar bunday yomon narsalarni o'ylaysizlar? Qaysi biri osonroq, gunohlaring kechirildi deb aytishmi yoki o'rningdan turib yur deb aytishmi? Inson o'g'liga yer yuzidagi gunohlarni kechirish hokimiyati berilgan. Hozir shuni bilib olasizlar. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their face, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you, know, you, now, uh, you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we ask that it would take root in our heart and bear fruit. Let us receive your word as the word of God and not the mere word of man. And Lord, I, I know that by your word, you accomplish your will. And we would pray that your will would be done in and among each of us here listening to your word. Let our hearts be encouraged. Let sin be forgiven. Let distance be overcome. Let us draw near to you in spirit and in truth. Let us worship you with all of our hearts. And I pray that the kind of awe and reverence that is right and appropriate in your presence would be within our hearts and our minds. And Lord Jesus, may we hear these words as if they were spoken directly to us. And so Lord, if there are those in this room who need faith, I, I pray that you would grant it. If there are those in this room who need healing, then in the name of Jesus, would you grant it, Lord? There are those in this room who need to know that your sins can be forgiven. And I pray, Lord Jesus, would you please let that happen this morning. And I know that all things are possible with you, but with man, none of this is possible. And so our faith is in you, Lord Jesus, in Christ's name. Amen. So we are making our way through the gospel of Matthew, and we have the blessing of, of this particular sentence, which strikes our attention, was, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. This is the comment that sort of leaps out at us and captures our attention. 
Um, it's one that we probably all need to listen to. Jesus said it, and it evoked a response, but it was one that resulted in him being accused of blasphemy. So the question is, did he blaspheme? Did he speak wrongly of God? Or was he speaking truthfully? If so, that's incredible news for people who are looking for their sins to be forgiven. So that's what we're going to take a look at this morning. We're, we're going to follow Jesus and discover, does he have the authority to make this statement, or is he blaspheming? Is this a right and proper exercise of his authority, or is it true that he is speaking out of turn? Um, Matthew, as we see, this issue of authority has come again. Uh, we've seen it again and again and again since the end of chapter 7, um, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we see that authority was at issue. We have seen Jesus' authority over distance uh, in healing. We've seen his authority over disease. We have seen his authority over disciples. We've seen his authority over storms, over evil spirits. We saw last week, uh, and now today we're going to see his authority that Matthew is showing us over sin. So his authority over sin. So as we think about this paragraph... If you like alliteration, this one's great, because what we're going to see is faith, then we're going to see forgiveness, uh, we're going to see a reaction to that, which you, you might, for the sake of, of alliteration, call fury by these uh, scribes and Pharisees. We're going to see Jesus present some facts, and then the result is fear. So that's where we're headed. So Matthew uh, characteristically gives us a geographic location. He always, almost always begins by letting you know this happened in a real time, real place. And so he says, he points out where we were, that we, we left Jesus. He gets in a boat, verse 1, right? And getting on the boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. So he doesn't tell us what he crossed over, but he just did in the previous paragraph. He's on the uh, eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, uh, at the country of the Gadarenes, which Jesus delivered these two demon-possessed men, he then, uh, the whole town came out to see Jesus, and they were offended by him, and they asked him to please leave. His uh, presence was not uh, helpful for the economic progress of the region. They loved money more than uh, the presence of a person uh, who is great and powerful, and so they asked him to leave. Jesus got in the boat and did what they said, went across the Sea of Galilee to the northwestern corner, where we see he, he came to his own city, is what we see in verse 1. And you might think that's Nazareth, but it's not. Um, as Matthew has already uh, unfolded to us, and this is where context comes to play. We, this morning at the 9 a.m. class, we were talking about context is helpful. If you just pluck out a verse, you might get mixed up. Um, he's not talking about Nazareth, which we might think Jesus of Nazareth. That's his town, right? It's not. He has begun his ministry, and in chapter 4, I think it's in verse 13, uh, Matthew tells us Jesus relocated. He wasn't welcome in Nazareth either. They tried to kill him there, tried to throw him off a cliff. And so he relocated to Capernaum. And so that's where this takes place. His own city is now home base in Capernaum, which is uh, where Peter lived. Peter and Andrew lived in Capernaum. Um, interesting that the, the foundations of that city uh, still remain to this very day, as does the foundation of uh, Peter's house. And so, um, and it could be that this story unfolds in Peter's house. We'll see. Mark tells us that he actually did, all of this scene is going to happen inside a house. And so it might very well be that it's Peter's house, because we know Jesus does not have a house in Capernaum. 
you remember when we were thinking about his authority over disciples, when the guy said, hey, can I follow you? Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He doesn't own a house in Capernaum. So he's, he's depending upon somebody to give him lodging. And it could be that Peter is there because we also saw him heal Peter's mother-in-law. So we know he has gone to Peter's house a few times. And so at uh, the house, what we discover is, Mark tells us, Matthew minimizes. Matthew's got a point. He's got a target. And he is aiming at a particular thing. It's the authority of Jesus. And so he leaves out a lot of other detail. And some of the detail is that there's, when Jesus arrived into Capernaum on the boat, word got around. When people realize he's in town, crowds began to come to him. And we are told that when Jesus saw the crowds gather into the house, he began teaching them. And so uh, the press of the crowd came in such that the doors, all the windows and doors were, were full of people. There was no room to move around. And so there's a crowd of people around him as Jesus is teaching them. Matthew doesn't tell this. Luke does. And also uh, Mark. But here's what we see. While he's preaching, verse 2, And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And Jesus saw their faith. I just want to stop right there, not finish the rest of the verse. So Matthew, and, and behold, uh, is a great way of saying, hey, look, can I get your attention? Uh, definitely something to see here. Behold, I want you to see this. So pay attention. And he says, some people came bringing a paralytic lying on a bed. So he captures attention. He says, a paralyzed guy came. Now what he doesn't tell you which Mark and Luke both do, is that they had to tear the roof off of the house to get the paralytic in front of Jesus. Jesus was so surrounded by people listening to him teach when these four men came carrying their friend on a, on a stretcher, a little cot, in order to, to get this man to Jesus. They couldn't get to him. Their people were everywhere. And so what they did was they carried him up on the roof. And have you ever carried anybody on a stretcher? This is not easy. It's difficult. Complete dead weight. They're carrying him around. They take him up on the roof of this house. And then they, Luke tells us they peel back the ceiling tiles and remove a space. And just think if this is your house now. You're having the Bible study, life group at your house. And, and now the roof is being torn apart. And yet they drop this man, this paralyzed man, right down in front of Jesus. And it's incredible because what does he say? He says, and Jesus saw their faith, which is amazing to me. Because what, he didn't see an interruption. He didn't see the useless destruction of private property. He, he didn't see this as a problem. He saw faith. Behind their actions. If it was me, I, I know exactly what I would be doing. What are the kids on the roof doing? I mean, you know, there's stuff falling down in my hair. All Who knows what? What is going on? I would not. It would be a struggle for me to stay calm in that situation. And yet Jesus says, it's faith. I see faith. It's amazing to me. Absolutely amazing to me. And this man has enough faith to entrust his body into the arms of four other people. 
Now, I've seen enough videos to know there's about a dozen ways this could have gone badly wrong. Uh, where, what kind of rope are they using? Did, did they know they were going to have to drop him down before they got there? I don't think so. I think this was imposition. Were they taking curtains off of the top? I don't know where they got whatever they lowered him with. But they pulled together something to drop this man down in front of Jesus. And he wants to be in front of Jesus. They want to get this man to Jesus and nothing will stop them. These guys are willing to interrupt a Bible study in order to deliver this guy into the presence of Jesus. And Jesus sees their faith. And I can't help but ask, is our faith visible like this? Does people see your faith? Do, do they know that you're trusting in Jesus, that you believe in the Lord Jesus? Is, is your faith visible? Because theirs is. They're doing things in action that points to an inward trust in the Lord Jesus. Is, is that visible in our lives? Because Jesus noticed that. And we know, what does James say? Faith without works is dead. Right? And so, do the, the, the deeds that we're doing point to faith in Jesus? So, Jesus sees their faith. And next, Matthew wants us to see forgiveness. So, look at verse 2. When Jesus sees this happening in front of him, this man coming down, he says to him, and I think he said this before he hit the ground. I don't know. That's just my imagination. It's okay to use the imagination. God gave us imagination. Put yourself in the text, right? When this guy's coming down and Jesus says to him, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And first of all, notice, this is very encouraging words. Take heart. He, he says to this, this guy has no hope. He's completely paralyzed. Imagine your life of being paralyzed, having to be completely dependent upon others to carry you around. He's got no local T transportation to get him to the store. He, he doesn't have a wheelchair. He has nothing. He's carried on a mat with a frame. And yet he, he wants to be in front of Jesus. And Jesus says, take heart. We could say, be of good cheer. I think that's what the King James Version says that I grew up on. We might say today, cheer up. Jesus says to him, cheer up. Something good is about to happen. And he says, my son. This is a, this is a term of endearment. This is an affectionate term. Um, in fact, the, uh, the Greek-English lexicon says there, this word is used when there is a special relationship of endearment. We might today say, my dear child, or my dear man, take heart, be encouraged. So Jesus encourages him by saying, my son, these are tender words. This is intended to be a, a, a point of encouragement to him. And then the third thing that Jesus says is, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Now this is striking for a couple of different reasons. This, this captures our attention, first of all, because why does he mention sin? I, it's, it's obvious why the guy's coming. He didn't come there to have his sins forgiven. He came to get his legs fixed. What, whatever the problem was in his spinal cord, I don't know what is going on. He, he wants to be able to walk again. His buddies aren't delivering him for forgiveness of sins. They're coming for deliverance from the sickness or whatever it is that's keeping him from walking. And Jesus says, uh, your sins are forgiven. And question, why does he do this? 
Jesus doesn't do this to anybody else that he heals. Only this guy. It's the only time. The only other time he actually says your sins are forgiven was a woman who showed up at dinner and maybe was a prostitute. He said to her, your sins are forgiven. He never says this to anybody else that he heals. Your sins are forgiven. So it could be that Jesus is making a connection here between the illness and the, the, the inability to walk. And so everybody in the room would have made that connection, by the way. They would have all thought... He can't walk because of some sin. That's exactly what Job's buddies do, right? When Job's friends came to him in the middle of all of his sickness, what did they say? Confess your sin. Whatever's happening to you is happening because of a result of your sin. This same thought comes to the disciples when they encounter a man who has been born blind and they come to him and they say to Jesus, well, who sinned that this man was born blind? Was it his parents or him? And Jesus says, neither. But the thought was there. So I think everybody in the room would have made the connection. And this is not an unfounded connection either. Sometimes we do suffer because of our sin. For example, Jesus said to a man that he healed at the pool of Siloam in John chapter 5 verse 14, after healing the man, he said to him, go and sin no more so that nothing worse would happen to you. Stop sinning so that nothing worse would happen to you. So Jesus is making a connection here. And we also see Paul giving instruction to the Corinthians about their treatment of the Lord's table, which we're about to celebrate today. We do that on the first Sunday of every month. We're going to celebrate communion today. Paul says to the Corinthians that some of them, he says, many of you are weak and sick and some of you have died. Right? Sinful disregard to the church, to the body of Christ, has resulted in sickness, weakness, and in some cases, death. Sometimes we do suffer for our sin, but not in all cases. So I don't know if Jesus is making a connection here between this man's paralysis and his sin, but it's easy to go there. But not all sickness, there's not a one-to-one correlation between all sickness, is there? Did Job suffer because of his sin? No. It was not God's purpose in his suffering. Did the man born blind suffer because of his sin? No. Jesus said the suffering happened so that God could be glorified through him. And yet, because Jesus says this, and he doesn't say this to anybody else, we need to ask the question. And in light of last week's time together, as we sat looking at the the place of spiritual battle in our lives, I, I said last week that when we embrace patterns of sin, we're welcoming the enemy in. And, and we need to ask ourselves, am I, and I'm, I'm, I'm inviting this question not to impose any guilt on anyone or any unfounded shame, but yet to ask the question, is sin at home in my life? Right, because the enemy would want you to say, this whatever's happened to you, it's because you're a wretched person. It's because of your sin. And I, I would say it may or it may not be. But you need to ask the question, is it? So the enemy will always want to take truth and distort it. And, and since last week we were, we were talking about the schemes of the devil, and David Chamberlain pointed out to me 
a very helpful book, which I, I remind you, which is Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. It is, if you want a, here's a man using a godly imagination on what it would be like in order for, for an elder demon to train a younger demon on how to, to make men miserable. It's an incredible book. I highly recommend it. If you want to understand the schemes of the devil, that's one place to go and look. And so this truth has been beaten upon people in unhelpful ways across. Many of you, you've probably suffered. You've heard somebody say, well, the reason this is happening is because of some sin in your life. Well, that's a question you need to ask yourself. Am I at home with any sin? If you're a Christian, you can't be. You cannot ever be content with sin. We can't. It is antithetical to the character of God. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, and so we cannot be comfortable with our sin. So you might need to ask the question, but also know it might not be the case. You might be suffering. There might be some physical weakness. This guy might be in paralysis for something that's not a direct correlation to some sin in his life. But it's a question every one of us need to ask. Because sometimes we do suffer for our own foolishness. And sometimes we just suffer because we live in a broken and cursed world. For example, yesterday I went out for an afternoon run around Horn Pond, which I love to do. Enjoying myself. It was almost raining, so there's not many people around. And it was peaceful and quiet. I'm clipping along at a nice pace, going through the woods, enjoying nature and the beauty. I'm praying and thinking and running along. And suddenly I realize an intense pain is on my left forearm. And I look down and a bee has decided to join me for my run. And he's poking the heck out of my arm. And I, I shook him off and kept going. And my first thought was, I didn't deserve that. <laughs> Where did that come from? I was minding my own business. I wasn't bothering anybody. I'm on the path. I'm not straying off into the woods. I didn't deserve that. I, and, and this thought occurred to me. Uh, I, I don't know if you remember a couple years ago, I told another story when I was on uh, a run around Horn Pond and I stopped and I was not minding my own business, and I got stung. <laughs> it's because if you throw rocks at a beehive, even if you are 30 feet away, you can get stung. And the point is, sometimes we get stung because of our own foolishness, and sometimes we just get stung because we live in a world where there are bees. Right? Sometimes our sin does bring consequences into our lives, and sometimes... Pain and suffering is into our lives just because we live in a cursed and broken world. So I don't know exactly what is going on in the life of this man. And that's not the point. It could be either. I see it as a moment for self-reflection to ask, is, is any sin at home in my heart? Because you need to put it away if it is. You need to confess it and turn away from all sin. But... It could also be that Jesus is using a general principle in saying, you know what? All physical suffering is a result of sin. Ultimately, if Adam and Eve had not sinfully rebelled against God, none of us would have suffering. There would be no sin. There would be no disease. There would be no stinging bees in this world. 
We'd, me and the bees would be having a good time. We'd, I, you know, we'd play together. Who knows what? We'd enjoy the honey. There would be peace. But because of sin in this world, we do sometimes suffer. And Jesus might be making a general point, illustrating the fact that he is the one who atones for sin and removes sickness. And Matthew has already made that connection. Back in chapter 8, verses 16 and 17, Matthew says this, At evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were sick. Why did he do this? To fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and he bore our diseases. Right? Jesus is the one who heals body and soul. He can restore physical weakness and spiritual weakness. He can take care of physical sickness, but there's a spiritual sickness that is much more significant, and it's sin. And Jesus brings it up. And we live in a world where nothing is a sin. It, there is no sin. We don't even want to talk about sin in our culture, does anybody want to talk about sin? But sin is offending God, and yet Jesus here brings up the issue even when nobody's looking for it. And then he says, your sins are forgiven. That's what Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. He's speaking in the present tense. And so it could be translated as, your sins are now forgiven. And, and that statement is a statement of declaration. He is stating a truth. He's telling this man as he's dropping down in front of him, all of your sins are forgiven. He's saying, I forgive your sins. What he's doing is declaring he has the authority to wipe this man's sins away. And now we see the fury, if you'll say. 9.3 Behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. Right, what... We don't see here that Matthew doesn't tell us. Mark says they also were thinking, nobody can forgive sins but God. Which is exactly right. Sin is an offense against God before it's ever an offense against any person. Sin is breaking the word of God or the will of God first and foremost. Do you remember what David said when he was confronted with his sin with Bathsheba? And he went into confession, Psalm 51, if you remember this, right? Against you and you only have I sinned. Meaning, he doesn't mean I didn't sin against Bathsheba's family and Bathsheba herself. Of course he did, but he was saying, first of all, I sinned against you. Before I ever sin against man, I've broken your word, Lord. And so, look at verse 3. Behold, right? He's saying, look at this. Pay attention here. Definitely something to see here. They're thinking, this is blasphemy. And the question is, is it? To, To blaspheme is to speak in a way that defames God's character or nature or misrepresents him. And so is Jesus here misrepresenting him because he's talking like he's God? Nobody can forgive sins but God alone. And here Jesus is saying, your sins are forgiven. Who does he think he is? And that's the question. That is the question. Who does he think he is? Because only God can forgive sins. And secondly, uh, The priest who announces forgiveness of sins only ever says it after a sacrifice has been made. After blood has been shed. 
The, the entire priesthood and sacrificial system is based upon the premise that there is no covering for sin. There is no atonement for sin unless there has been the shedding of blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And what is Jesus talking about here? There's been no sacrifice. Nothing happened in this house. This is a Bible study. It's not the temple. There's no, no sacrifice. And Jesus is not even a priest. He's, he's from the wrong tribe. What is he doing? And now here's, look for the facts. So Jesus knows this, verses 4 to 6. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say? To say your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Uh, this sort of leaves your head spinning because you realize Jesus is claiming to be the Son of Man, which if you're a good Jew, this will take you back to Ezekiel, who uses this phrase more than 90 times in Ezekiel to refer to God's chosen, anointed spokesperson who's the representative of God to man and the Redeemer. The one who will take away sin and, and usher in God's kingdom. And here Jesus is saying, this is the son of man. Well, first of all, if you're one of the scribes of the Pharisees and, and some guy speaks what you were thinking, you'd, you'd pay attention, right? He, he knows what we're thinking. And what does Jesus say? He says, why do you think evil in your hearts? Jesus is able to perceive down to the core and the innermost feelings of these men and says, I, I know what you're thinking. I understand what you're saying. And he says, it's evil what you're thinking. He's saying, I'm not blaspheming. It is, it is evil to say that a holy person is, is, is sinning against God when he's actually effecting the will of God. And so Jesus says, okay, you need evidence? I'll give you some evidence. Which is easier? To say... Your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up and walk. Well, what's the answer? It's not a trick question. They're both impossible. A mere man cannot forgive someone's sin. And neither can a mere man give a paralyzed person strength to stand up and walk. And so Jesus says, I'm going to help you think about who I am, so to speak. And he says, I, I, I'll do both. I, I will say to this man, so that you may know, verse 6, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That's what he wants us to know, by the way. That's the point of this, par this little paragraph. So that you'll know that Jesus has authority to forgive sins. He says, I say to you, paralyzed man, get up and walk. Now, we can say your sins are forgiven. How do we verify if it actually happened? Anybody can say that, right? You can say that to your coworker at work. Your sins are forgiven. Well, how do you know it actually is true? And Jesus says, but I can say to a paralyzed guy, get up and walk. A man who can't walk, who's never walked. And if, what happens if he actually gets up and we know that's happened. We know it's true because it's verifiable. And so Jesus says, rise up and walk. And this man, verse 7 now we see the fear. He rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid. 
And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. That's astonishing. Jesus said, rise up and walk. And this man rose up and walked. Why? What is the purpose of the miracle? It's to illustrate Jesus' authority to wipe away your sins. It's his authority to forgive the debt that we have against God. Sin, first and foremost, against God. And Jesus says, I want you to know I have that authority. And so this man got up. The miracle is not so much that a paralyzed man can walk. The miracle is that guilty people can be absolved of their sin. That's the greatest miracle that we see here. And when people saw it, they were terrified. The Greek word here is phobeo. It's it's phobia. They were fearful when they saw this guy who's dropped down in front of them on a pallet. And he gets up and he carries what he was just let in on. He walks home. He obeys. And what do we see? God has done something in Jesus. And I hope you see this. God has done something absolutely incredible through Jesus. Sins can be forgiven only through Jesus. Folks, this is the only person in human history who can wipe away that which keeps you from God. It's Jesus No other religion on the planet has has a person like Jesus. He is the only one. And so forgiveness of sin is what this is all about. And my question to you is, do you know this? Do you think Jesus saw this man and, and didn't know what his problems were, what his sins were? If Jesus could perceive the thoughts of those who were thinking he was blaspheming, could he not perceive the wickedness of this guy? And, and so, Christians, those of you who are walking with the Lord, do you sometimes not struggle with, I, I've done it again, I've failed again, and I, I, I just wonder, if, is Jesus going to be gracious to me, or is he just snap his fingers and I'm done? You ever think that? And I would say to you, your sins are forgiven. When Jesus called you into a relationship with himself, he was not ignorant of your future sins. He knew exactly what you would do 25 years from now. And he still said, come to me. I will forgive you of your sins. I grant you forgiveness. And for those of you who don't know that... Can you not hear the words of this man who's alive today, seated at the right hand of God, who would say, come to me and I will say to you, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. So look to Jesus. He is a tender savior. Remember what he said to this man. Take heart. Be encouraged Yes, you've spent your life on a pallet with people carrying you around. But be encouraged. I will lift you up. I will forgive your sins. I will take away the thing that has kept you far from God. And I would also say, every person who comes to God needs to be absolutely convinced you're just as impotent in your sins as this paralyzed man is to get to Jesus on your own. We all go to Jesus completely paralyzed. When people say Christianity is a crutch, 
I said, no, it's a cot, because somebody got to carry me to Jesus. It's not just a crutch. Jesus comes. He, he calls us to himself into a relationship. I didn't, I didn't choose Jesus apart from him saying, open my blind eyes so that I could see the glory of Christ. And then I choose, yes, dear Savior, forgive my sins. Go to him. He is a sweet and tender Savior. Second, let your friends help you. Sometimes we need some help, and we're so stubbornly independent. We don't want any help, right? I don't want anybody to know my issues. I don't want anybody to know my business. I don't want anybody to know my faults. But you know what the Bible says? Confess your sins to who? That means some talking has to be going on. Somebody has to be listening. There's a community aspect here where the Spirit of God works. And I saw this room filled last week with people confessing sins and turning away from sins. And and don't stop. Keep confessing your sins. We're told in the Lord's Prayer, right? Confess your sins daily. If you're asking for bread daily, you should be asking for forgiveness daily. Let your friends walk with you through this journey. Don't isolate yourself. Don't let the enemy pull you away. Let others help you or you be the one helping, right? Sometimes we need to be carried or maybe we're the ones doing some carrying, but we need each other in order to find our way to the Lord Jesus. Third, have faith in him. Have faith in him. Do you believe these words can be spoken to you? Take heart, my son or my daughter. Your sins are forgiven. Todd Cravens, your sins are forgiven. Put yourself in there. You, your sins are forgiven. Right? Do you believe that? That's that's what Jesus, he sees the faith and the trust. Believe in him. And then lastly, I think we have, when we come to moments of confession, don't, don't stay on the paralyzed palate of sin. When you confess, leave it. Get up and go home. Don't go back again to the garbage can. Why do we again, like dogs, return to our vomit? Leave your sin behind and pray for the grace of God to once again refresh your heart and soul with a love of holiness and a hatred for sin. Why do we so often say we get up off of the palette of paralysis and sin, we experience God's grace. And 24 hours later, you know, I think I'm going to wander back over here into the trash can, lay back down again. Why do, why do we do that? When we have a Savior who says, I've forgiven you, you don't have to go back there anymore. Get up. Go home to Jesus. Go home and rest in Him. Let's pray together. Lord, Please grant faith. Grant us to to receive the forgiveness that you give. By faith, Lord Jesus, wash away our sins, cleanse us, cause us to walk in your ways. Let the new covenant promises land on us. Transform our hearts. Fortify your people in this room, Lord, I pray. And Father, for those who don't yet know you, let faith be given in such a measure that the Spirit of Christ is poured out into hearts and transforms old, dead, cold, stony hearts into hearts of flesh that are new and living and alive to you. 
Let us live to you and walk in such a way to please you, Lord Jesus. Without you, we are nothing, but with you, lives can be transformed. It is in your name I pray. Amen.